Hello, you're listening to Alfie Moore's podcast with me, Alfie Moore. I was a police officer in the Humberside Force for over 20 years. I covered uh, Scunthorpe, Grimsby, Hull, uh, before the, uh, the culture arrived. Uh, each week on this podcast, I'll be discussing policing matters with a special guest to try and show what really goes on behind closed doors in the force. As always, I'll be joined by Will, the producer. Hello, Will. Hey, Alfie. And today my special guest is Serving Police Temporary Detective Chief Superintendent... That's a mouthful. <laughs> ...Liz Mead, who is Head of Crime at Bedfordshire Police Force. In fact, uh, Head of Crime and also Head of the Public Protection Unit, the PPU, just in case uh, she gets bored dealing with all the crime in, <laughs> in Bedfordshire. So, hello, Liz. Hello, Helen. Thank you so much uh, for being a guest on the show. And clearly your senior management. So my first question is, would you say you're from a privileged background or from humble beginnings? Um, humble beginnings, uh, very much so. Um, none of my family have uh, been in the police service. Uh, my parents um, hail from London. Uh, my dad is a very proud Cockney. And uh, he moved to uh, Luton to work um, just after my mum and dad got married and lived in Luton and then I came along and then uh, we've lived in Bedfordshire all our lives. So um, so residential training school? Yeah, Ashford Police Training Centre in Kent, which is now I think hotel. Um, right. It was uh, it had a really long drive, which was the mile and a half that you had to do in under 12 minutes. Um, and this I, was the run? The run, yeah, the run, the, the fitness run you had to do. And I was always worried I was going to fail it. It was one of those things that... Um, I'd liked sport, always done sport, but running, you know, in order to make sure you passed it, I think you kind of psyched yourself up so much, am I going to fail it, am I going to be out? And I was always worried about that. And I think all my whole career, it's, you know, then you've had the bleep test to do, and I've always think, oh, my God, I'm going to fail it, I'm going to fail it. But it's all in your mind. You know, it's you can do it, anyone can do it. It's just that um, it's in your mind. So, yeah, Ashford Training Centre. Uh, then off to Luton. Off to Luton, Can you yeah. remember the first job you got sent to when you yes i can <laughs> um my first arrest so uh, i had a tutor dave was my tutor um and he was really patient and really great and uh, i got partnered with him and I, the first thing you do is you did five weeks down the town center so down the arndale center as it was called then in luton and my first arrest was a shoplifter and I went, and it was, uh, this is, you see the ageing here, so it was CNA, so she'd, right. <laughs> she'd stolen something from CNA, this lady, <laughs> this lady, uh, I, I can remember actually what it was. It, was, it was, they were pink leggings, really bizarre that she'd stolen, <laughs> you remember so much detail about your first thing, and I went to the, you I then, hope you got the appropriate support, <laughs> clearly well, out for. bizarrely, uh, went round then, you, you go to the um, back of the, the store, and then the store detective relays to you the facts in the presence and hearing of the um, the person that needs to be arrested and you then arrest them and then you trot out the caution because you've learnt it, you've memorised it, which was different back then. It, it, was, it was added, there were some other things added subsequently. And uh, I, I arrested her and her first words after caution were, um, just so you know, I've taken an overdose. That wasn't told to me at training school what you did if someone said that to you. I was expecting a, you know, a no comment or it wasn't me or whatever. Just give her the luggage just, like and say, get yeah, yourself so, off, love. Good so stuff. it did. So she said, and my tutor looked at me and he went, okay, right. So we then, 
I, I arrested her, took her to an institution went to, um, instead of going to custody, I had to go straight to the Luton and Dunstable Hospital, to the A&E department there, and I promptly sat with her for six hours while they gave her some substance, I think it was charcoal or something, to make her sick. So I was, yeah, my first arrest was uh, me holding a sick bowl with the prisoner being sick in it, having taken an overdose. This was a glamour. You were <laughs> <It was. laughs> This was a glamour that you were hoping for. Because yeah. there is that first thing, I think, about putting your uniform on, and when you worked in the town centres, it was all mirrors, isn't it? You know, all the shop fronts, and you'd look past and you think, I can't believe that's me in the mirror there. It just doesn't commute that you're that. That's you. Yeah. Uh, so but, yeah. but you didn't have to wear the big silly hat, did you? That it was that 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 bit I thought that made you look a little bit silly walking down the street because I like catch reflection and see the big pointy hat <laughs> thing. That just looks a bit bit daft. No, I loved it. I mean, the, the thing was, though, if you want to talk about uniform back in the, the early 90s, I mean, in terms of uh, female police officers, and we were uh, we were called WPCs, Women Police Constables, and we, uh, in that big bag that I got when I joined, um, you'd got a skirt, you'd got a tunic, you'd got, I think they called it a Gore-Tex coat, because they'd moved on from the big capes that i mean because capes were still my 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 duty first duty inspector wore a cape she had a cape on and it was just like wow you know <laughs> that's some batman coming out of this cape thing but we had these rain jackets and we had what they called nato pullovers the navy pullovers so i got the uh, we had a skirt and for the first 18 months uh, we didn't have trousers women were not allowed to wear trousers this is early 90s we weren't allowed to wear trousers then uh, it was agreed, uh, I think, sort of 91, 92, that we could have trousers. But you lost your tights allowance, I bet, didn't you? We lost a stocking allowance. Two pound, two pound eight pence per month uh, was, it was, the, was a stocking allowance. Um, and I know it seems really funny, but back then you didn't have these denier tights that everyone wears. You know, it, it was always it was literally those thin stockings and tights that you had to wear. So you had those on, and you had your skirt on, and uh, during the day. Um, when you were running after a burglar or someone that broke into a car or somebody, you had your skirt on. And sometimes it would mean that, you know, you had to climb over a fence. And I do remember having, that was back of the, the nick, actually, there was a school. I had to climb over it and it had one of those metal fences. And I'm thinking, I'm clambering over this. The world can see everything because I've got a skirt and stockings on. And I'm clambering over this thing trying to find this person. Um, but that was what was allowed in the day. At night, you could wear trousers. How does that commute, that you can wear trousers at night when no one can see you because it's dark, mm -hmm. but in daylight, you have to wear a skirt? So you finally got your chance. Yeah. And there are applications in CID. Yeah. So, so what was the process? <laughs> the process, well, it was uh, 250 uh, police officers per PCs applied for DCs um, to do the DC programme. So out of a small force. Are these national numbers? No, no, locally. <coughs> yeah, 250 Bedfordshire officers? Yeah, would apply. apply. Would apply to, be, to become CID. Oh, that was a popular for, job. For how many places? Uh, they would do 30. 30 places they would do at one time. So it was tough competition. They paper sifted people out quite quickly, and then they would do... Uh, they had 80 people go to interview... Uh, and it was like loads of stages. Um, and I, yeah, the final interview, you know, why do you want to do this? You had big panel questions. Uh, and then I found out that I'd got it. I'd been successful. I was number two on the, the list of 32 that had got through. Um, they couldn't deny you then. They couldn't deny me. But you may may not be surprised to hear that uh, 
Uh, I had somebody come up to me uh, the week after I uh, got told that I was, you know, ready to become a, a detective. And uh, my colleague said, oh, who did you sleep with to get the questions then to come second? I said, sorry. Well, you know, it's uh, you, know, you must have slept with someone to come second. I said, well, slept with who? I mean, I was sleeping with my husband. He's a builder. He certainly didn't know the questions. <laughs> he doesn't know the questions for a detective board. And really, you know, if you want to talk about buildings, that's absolutely fine. But he would have no idea about criminal investigation. So, yeah, they, they were the sorts of things that you were kind of up against, really. That how could you be a female officer with three years service that could go into the CID? And, and what happened when you did did go in? What, <laughs> what was your first impression? Um CID was always kind of, it's a bit magical, it was, like this magical office on the on the second floor at Luton Police Station. And it's still the CID office now. And um, I always say to the officer who sits in my seat, as I will always call it, the seat that I first sat in, uh, that was my seat. And, and that will always be the position in the force where I call home because I was in that Luton CID office a long time and it feels my natural home so even when I'm, when I'm going down to Luton to do a you know, superintendent extension um, I haven't got an office down there but I always gravitate towards that squad and sit in at that desk it's we really were, strange. Were you made to feel welcome? Um, the, well kind of in certain respects but the first thing that you had to I think remember about going to a CID office in the 90s was when you opened the door the fug of smoke that came out because yeah, people smoked in their um, in the workplace, and detectives always had a fag on. You know, they, they they would be smoking in the office. There would be this cloud, and my first DS uh, was smoked constantly. Uh, I don't know how many cigarettes I've smoked in my life in terms of through osmosis. Um, and you always had to have a packet of cigarettes in your bag because when you interviewed a prisoner, you know, you would be in this tiny little little interview room and there'd be an expectation that, that, that you would allow them to smoke because, you know, that would relax them and hopefully they would then, I, you know, I, talk. I'd always carry <coughs> a ten pack of fags in my pocket. Really? In uniform. In uniform yeah. everywhere I went in case you got... Yeah. If you If you wanted to... Uh, if you wanted somebody to admit to something <laughs> and, you, and you didn't want to use a uh, out of pace sort of uh, illegal uh, off the record interview if you could just be nice to people really give them a cigarette and not say a word and very often they'd say well, uh, well I did it or uh, yeah uh, how long will I be in there if I admit to it and, and just and just start yeah, the it, it meant a lot to people to to have a fag and were you, were you one of the only women um, there. There was two women within the CID office, which was, um, at that time, it was a, an office of 40 people, and uh, it was the second second uh, female uh, detective within there. Was it a macho-type job with a bunch of guys, do you think? Quite a lot of macho things. I mean, I suppose this is where I thank my dad's love of football for coming in, for being able to always have a conversation, because, you know, there's lots of languages, but the language of football and the language of sport is spoken internationally. And if you can talk about uh, a football team, you can talk about the players, and not just um, on the surface, you actually know. So, you know, they'd say to me, oh, you know, what do you know about football? And I'd go, well, you know, I've, I've always followed it, yeah. And so I said, well, actually, my first match that I remember was 1978 was the uh, Ipswich Arsenal FA Cup final and Ipswich beat Arsenal. And apparently that was a really good thing <laughs> because being a Tottenham fan. And I remember those things, you know, Roger Osmond scored, you know, that sort of stuff and the detail I knew about. So then people would think, 
okay, she's not just saying she likes football to try and impress or be one of the the lads. And I've never wanted to be one of the lads. I or I like to be part of a group, but I've always wanted to be me because I think it's really difficult trying to be something you're not and trying to be authentic, really. And I was different going into the CID office. I was, you know, a mum. Uh, we didn't have flexible or part-time working in 1996. wasn't anything. You either worked full-time or you left the job. And, you know, I had lots of colleagues that left the job because they became parents and families, and the job was not accommodating at that time. But we lost so much talent. So how old were you when, when you first went into CID, uh, CID then? 25. Twenty-five. And what sort of jobs as a female in CID yeah. would, you, would you sort of get? So you'd have anything from a rape, um, a robbery, assaults, fraud. Just a lot of fraud cases. But were you more likely to get certain jobs because of your gender? I don't think I was actually. Well, no, my my DS was very fair around things about what people were getting. Um, now. I did have a, a certain empathy with, with victims. I find it interesting that the, back then, I mean, my perception was that, for example, uh, a sexual assault victim or a rape victim, yeah. we'd be much more direct. I'll not use the word aggressive, but, but uh, we'd be much more uh, robust in, in our questioning of, of the victim. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we, we got a, a bit of a kicking for that. In, in the media after a period of years. Yes. Uh, and so we got a lot more uh, careful and considerate and gentle and, and went from a, point, a place of believing the victim. Yeah. Uh, and that was our initial starting point. Yeah. And now, looking at what's in the media, we're now being criti- after after some high-profile cases, yeah. Yeah. We're, we're now looking at that and the police are being criticised for starting from the point of believing the victim and not testing their account more robustly. But things have changed massively in lots of different ways. I mean, I work, having worked on the vice unit, um, we, you, know, you had 16, 17-year-old girls that were working the streets of Luton and they were referred to as child prostitutes. Now, I'm horrified now in 2019 that though that terminology was ever used. But in the mid-90s, we that's what you know they were referred to it was a child prostitute and it was around arresting the them and dealing with them maybe looking at social services but now you wouldn't you know that they are victims they are child they are you know they're exploited they're child sex exploitation victims and we must make sure that we're looking at their vulnerabilities and why they're doing those things rather than using the criminal side of it so you mentioned the vice you, you, you were, you were, uh, you had a problem with soliciting at times of, of prostitutes in Luton. Yeah. And uh, you've got a story <laughs> about uh, uh, being used to. Uh, yes. I, I'll let you phrase it. I don't know what you. <laughs> you don't know what to use, do you? <laughs> there were, I was a PC um, on the vice unit, and what we would do is uh, we would arrest the the girls for uh, applying their trade in in the area. Um, And I had a really good relationship with so many of the the girls there at that time. Um, A lot of them were were mums, they were um, 
being forced to do it. Um, they had uh, what we called pimps at the time who were making them do it, taking their money. A lot of them were on drugs. They were really, but they, you know, they were fun people. You know, we were just uh, an occupational hazard for them, really. We would arrest them, deal with them. But then there was, for me, so there's that element of it. But then there was the what we call the curb crawlers, so the um, the people that were buying the services, and it was in a a very residential area of Luton and you know this constant stream of cars going through it wasn't great for for the residents so we would uh, on occasions do um, an operation around um, trying to get the curb crawlers so we would go out uh, and I was the only female on the uh, the unit at the time uh, not surprising really when you think about it in general there were less of us so less of us on these units um, my PC colleagues would go and sit in the car opposite and they would say, right, off you go. And I would be expected just to walk the street. And, you know, it makes it sound like it's something off of um, Pretty Woman. No, it wasn't. I was, you know, I'd be wearing just like low-heeled boots, my jeans and a, and a, and a, a jacket and just walk the street. To so there was no entrapment sort of? Not, really. elements. not in terms of being sort of doled up, dressed up, sort of to try and look like you were at work in the streets. It was just to be, in effect, potentially a member of the public walking through that area. And we did often get, um, you know, students saying that they've been propositioned and, you know, not a, not a place you'd want to walk through. So I, I would do the walk through and you'd get cars stop you, wind their window down and, you know, ask you how much uh, and what could you do for them. And then what would happen is they would say something to you and if it was an offer um, for sexual services, it was, you know, soliciting for the purpose of prostitution and I would walk away, like look at them quizzically as I say, I have no idea what you're talking about, walk away, usually brush my hair, my hand through my hair, uh, my colleagues would then see that signal uh, and then the person would obviously wind the window up and go off as if to say, oh, it's, she's obviously not, not working. Then they would go off for maybe a mile and then the little blue light on the uh, covert car would come on and it was one of these old-fashioned blue lights that whirred around, you know, you put it... it was, it was a bit Cagney and Lacey, wasn't it? <laughs> Putting the blue light on top of the plain car. Magnetic. magnetic up, yeah. uh, with, the, with the wire down to the cigarette light. And great then... <laughs> it was fun. I'm yeah. have to say yeah. it was great fun. And then they would whir off. And, and then I would be picked up by another colleague, put in a car, uh, and I would go... They would be stopped maybe a mile down the road. Then I would get out and I would produce my warrant card and go, uh, good evening, sir. Um, do you remember the conversation we just had back in, in, in the road in Luton? Um, you just propositioned me, um, and that's against the law. And you could see, uh, you know, the bottom drop out of their world, or the world drop out the bottom one or the other, I'm not quite sure, and look at you as if to say, ugh. And then at that time, what we didn't do, though, is we didn't prosecute. We did it as a, you know, a warning. And so we would then say what's going to happen is a letter's going to be sent to your home address about the fact that you've been uh, seen in this area. And you'll be receiving that within the week to ten days. So did you did that deliberate the home address thing, or, or was no, that just no? That was just how, how we that's how, how we correspondence did it. worked. That's how correspondence worked back yeah. then, because there wasn't email, there wasn't a computer. No, <laughs> you, you typed the letter on a I don't know a manual typewriter. Yeah, but, but consequently, <laughs> a lot of people uh, 
stayed in for four nights. Sure <laughs> Maybe they, they did. Well, I can imagine they, and I wouldn't be too happy if I was a partner and I happened to receive that, you know, so I saw that letter. Yeah, you'd have quite a lot of explaining to do. And that was a general idea, was I think, back then, to say, would well, you know what, you are, you're, you're a nuisance to the residents here, you'll commit in offences, we won't prosecute you, but what we will do is... Um, We'll just give you was there a type to the type of guys? No, there that? wasn't. There, it was really interesting because sometimes I'd look at them and I think, what on earth are you doing here? Why are you trying to, you know, pick up a prostitute for sex in this area? I just, I, I just couldn't quite compute it really. Well, because if they, they look so normal and they look and, normal. And, I mean, there were. I guess we're not trying to sort of stereotype here, but um, they're often, you know, sometimes very nice cars that most probably were like salespeople, you know, reps, business, you know, business, you know, businessmen uh, w- would kind of turn up, and you know, and some of them had quite a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was quite, you know, very bizarre. Well, one one time, someone said, uh, you know, behind the window, and said, uh, uh, "I'm staying in a really nice hotel. I'll pay you a thousand pound if you'd like to come back with me for the night." And was it a pause like that? <laughs> you just paused. There. It wasn't an indecent, an indecent proposal there. <laughs> no. And did he look like Robert Redford? The guy? <laughs> no, no. And it, but and by then, £1,000 was a lot of money. £1,000 was a lot of money. Um, but no, uh, indecent proposal or not, absolutely not. Did he get a letter? He got a letter. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't quite put what he'd said in there. You didn't get the, the full thing in there. But yeah. yeah. That, that, so, yeah, that, that was one of most probably... One of my... That's, bizarre, quite a, that's very flattering. You think it's flattering? Yeah, I, I, I bet you was... I, I'd have been like, wow, I've just been... I mean, nobody ever offered me a grant for anything. <laughs> <laughs> the whole time. I don't think my colleagues could quite believe it, because, you know, they're just like, they offered you what? <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> no. Do you think it was an effective deterrent, or did you see a lot of... Re- would you run into the same people again? No, surprisingly not. I didn't see the same people twice when we did it. So I, I think there was a... And what we'd do is, you know, there'd also be the thing about logging registration numbers back then. And, and no, we tended not to see them again. So I think it was a quite a good uh, deterrent factor. And I just don't think people think through what they're doing and why they're doing it. The other thing that we used to get a lot of is drink drivers. So a uh, bit of courage, you know, decided to get a lot of drink drivers. So we would stop the girls who'd got into the car and we'd do exactly the same. Once they'd got into the car, we'd follow them and then we would stop them. The girl would be arrested uh, for the loitering offences and then the guy would then be spoken to and actually be interviewed and go to court. So if they actually picked up a prostitute, they would, um, would go to court. But some of them, you know, they ended up being arrested because they were drunk. Would we use that same tactic now, or, or has no, that changed? No, I don't think we would use that. We would consider that too no. intrusive these days. Yeah, I think I think so. I think we would also. Well, I think what we try to do a lot around um, people that you know that the, the on-street uh, prostitution is look at how we can support the the girls that are doing that and how can we try and take it off of the street how can we make them safe because the other thing that we also used to have quite a lot of is where you know they would be robbed for their money they would be you know the victim of street robbers and also victims of sexual offenses um you know when it went dreadfully wrong for them as well and so you know they're very much victims in in relation to that so you, you finally got promoted to Saudi. You weren't in a rush. Weren't in a rush. You no, you, could, a rush. you can't hardly say I was in a hurry. Um, so in 2006, my son was um, 10, and I decided that that was about the right time to maybe look at promotion. 
um, I was really fortunate that um, for me I became I got promoted and I got promoted straight to a detective sergeant so I didn't go back into uniform um, which I suppose looking back maybe would have been a good thing but at the time I was a detective a career detective that's all I wanted to do and I got promoted to um, Dunstall Police Station as a, as a DS um, I was there eight weeks as a DS, newly promoted, just got my team all sorted, you know, really working well. And then I got a call from the Deputy Chief Constable to say, um, oh, Liz, um, I need you to come to a meeting next week. There's going to be a small team there and we're going to use the Proceeds of Crime Act on a organised crime group, though they weren't called an OCG then, but an organised crime group, to try and dismantle their assets. And we want you to, to be part of that team. I was like, OK, so it's be about four to six weeks' work. <laughs> four to six weeks. Uh, my colleague was on it for six years. Um, <laughs> and we literally... Um, well, it worked out quite well. Um, there was some... We, you know, we, we believed that there was um, quite a lot of you know, organised crime going on there. But what we managed to... Um, uncover where they'd not been so clever was around cash for crash i don't know if you remember those offenses so literally a staged and fraudulent car accidents now when i think about it now we would not have the capacity or the uh, appetite to look for cash for crash jobs you know on, on that scale because of the numbers and because of the other threats that we've got but back then we were looking you mean you just you wouldn't have resources we wouldn't have the resource to deal with that not, <coughs> not to be on a job or to put an operation together for that amount of time I mean, we arrested 78 people 45 people went to court and we seized 4.5 million so it was it was quite a, I mean, it wasn't going to happen in four Good to job. six weeks was all, it all part of the same all part of the same gang. the same the same group that was being arranged so we would have the people that had faked the accident we had the engineer that was faking the the car frauds i mean it was just it was huge there was this kind of some of these companies there was a real kind of laissez-faire attitude that these people were managing to get um car hire and charging 42,000 pounds and the com insurance companies were paying 42 grand for car for, for, for car hire and they it, didn't notice well they were just paying it out storage this so they would have these accident so they were having lots of bites. Lots of bites. Cherry, the they? accident claim uh, company would be there, and they would be charging charging storage for the damaged vehicle that was never damaged because the accident never happened because it was never you know and they would be charging like you know 20 pound a day storage so all these fees were racking up and the companies were just paying it then you would also have um the injury the personal claim injury you know four people in the car whiplash, whiplash uh, all being paid out but no one was in the car you know and it was just all of this scam that was going on uh, with this particular crime group um I mean, they were very good at it. Well, not quite good enough because we caught them, but... <laughs> and, and, and did you... Is that the assets you managed to seize? Yeah. The four, four and a half million? Yeah, but with, but that was most probably... Over the four or five years, that was most probably paid for the overtime bill. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so how does it, how do it work with the proceeds of crime? Six, Do you get to keep that? No, we have to split it six ways for that one. Six ways. So CPS gets some, the courts get some, everyone gets a bit of it, and we get a sixth of okay. it. Um <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was an amazing job to be on, and I, and I look back on it, and I, again, I work with some amazing colleagues on that, some what I call real, true detectives who didn't 
leave any stone unturned. You know, I, I joke now uh, with my colleague uh, uh, now who's, who's subsequently retired. He used to have post-it notes everywhere, like pencil and post-it notes on everything. And, you know, it's just a bit of a standing joke about you got some post-it notes. You know, you've still, got, still, still keeping that company afloat, are you? Um, but it, the detail that, that he went into, and we had a financial advisor, or, you know, a financial investigator on there, and they were amazing. And uh, they went to, it was a mortgage fraud and cash for crash case that went to court um, and one of those that most probably for me a bit of a defining moment in believing in myself which might sound a bit strange you know so I was a, a sergeant on my DS on that and um, myself and, and my colleague uh, we won the investigator of the year award and as a result of that I uh, was asked to become a staff officer so I, I went and worked in the staff office working directly for the assistant chief constable and deputy chief constable um, as their kind of uh, on the ground crime it, they wanted a DS in there because their portfolios were around crime stuff so yeah and it was a bit of a catalyst really the most satisfying arrest um I still most probably think in a bizarre way um, it, it was my first arrest because you've uh, all my life I'd been working up to being, you know, so that very first arrest, saying the, the right words were great. I, mean, I suppose that was the funniest part around, you know, nicking somebody. I, I just was, you know, when I went over to um, magistrate court when I was a detective and um, got someone that was wanted for burglary and they were supposed to be appearing at the magistrate's court. And some said, oh, yeah, he's over there, so I'll go over. So I went over with uh, one of my colleagues. And anyone that knows Luton Magistrates Court know that the stairs there are horrific. They are the, the steepest steps that you can imagine that you have to totter down. And, yes, I always wear heels, which most probably isn't the most sensible thing. But I had my heels on and I walked down. And they said, oh, he's just coming in the front entrance now. I said, OK, no problems, I'll, I'll go down, you know, on the old mobile, on the, on the radio. Went down. Um, Walked about five steps down, and there were another ten, and I fell, caught my heel in my trousers, and fell all the way down to the bottom of the stairs. Um, and then this really charming gentleman picked me up and said, um, "Oh, you all right?" I'm so. I said, "I'm absolutely fine, but you're not, because you're under arrest for burglary." <laughs> <laughs> and then cautioned him, and, and yeah, and he was somebody that was usually a bit feisty and a little bit kind of That's prickly. Calm up for you, isn't it? <laughs> but but uh, fortunately, he saw the very funny side of it, and. Uh, was happy to put his hands out for me to cuff him and then take him away. But So in terms of, yeah, that was one of Otherwise my... Otherwise the yields would have been sprinting. Oh, no. <laughs> Temporary Detective Superintendent Mead, thank you for taking the time to talk to, okay. to us today. Uh, fabulous career. Thank and you. Uh, it's, it's, it's great to see that you're doing a wonderful job. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Just got one little thing that we do. And you mentioned the caution earlier. And you mentioned the caution changing. And we have this like top gear thing where we time people doing the caution. So now you're under pressure. It's back to the old. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, off you go in your own time, as quick as you can, please. It may uh, harm your defence if you don't mention one question, something you're relying on court. Anything you do say may be given evidence. That's it. Yeah. It was so. That 3.7 seconds. That is uh, pretty close to the top of the league, I think. Very good. Well very, well very good. Do you know why yeah. I know that? So quickly you can do it, because Robert Peroni on a BBC radio show asked me only a couple of weeks ago when, uh, do you remember um, Boris Johnson was trying to say the caution oh, at yeah. a police training centre and he was making a real hash of it and I was being interviewed about something totally else and he just said, you said, do you know the police caution? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Great. Nice talking to you. Thank Thanks you very much. much. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you.